welcome to His Church Owensboro Podcast. We are so excited about what God is doing in your life, and we would love to hear from you. Visit us at hischurch.cc and let us know about all of the things that God is doing in your life. If you have been blessed by this podcast and would consider supporting us financially, please visit hischurch.cc and click on Give to see the many options available. Thank you for joining us. We hope this message blesses you. Well, I'll tell you what, His Church, I'm extremely excited, and it's a great privilege to introduce to you a great, great man, great man of God, great pastor, great leader, Pastor Willie George. And Pastor Willie George is the founding pastor of Church on the Move in Tulsa, Oklahoma. It's actually been one of the flagship churches of America for almost 30 years. Uh, a lot of you might remember him. He changed and affected kids' ministry around the world. The way we do kids' ministry in churches in America, much of it was designed and came through Pastor Willie George. God used him as a vessel to lift children's ministry where it's not just Kool-Aid and crackers, but it's the Word of God taught at their level. How many are thankful for somebody that will bless kids like that? It's powerful, powerful. And then with my generation, we grew up, uh, a lot of kids around my age and a little younger grew up watching him as Gospel Bill. He put Gospel Bill out. It taught principles around the world. And then he founded Church on the Move, and 180 came out of that ministry, which was revolutionized teenage ministry, youth ministry, showing the church in America how to reach out to teen teenagers. He's made such an investment into the world, into our generation, and then a few years ago, the church began to lose its grasp on what was happening in the world around us. Culture was shifting, and our kind of church was not keeping up. God called Pastor George to start a conference called Seeds, where he trained pastors around America how to bring their Bible-believing churches, spirit-filled churches, into a relevance that would reach people right where they are without compromising the Word of God. I'm telling you, he, he grew up and had some time, grew up in Texas, did time out here in the Panhandle. I don't know what happened and why I moved to Oklahoma, but we're going to forgive you for that, right, Pastor George? Come on. Y'all stand up on your feet and give Pastor George a big His Church hand clap. Get ready to receive from the Word of God. Thank you, Pastor. Love you. Thank you. You may be seated. You're very, very kind. Oh, man. I am a missionary to Oklahoma. <laughs> Been there for 40 years. I've actually lived in Oklahoma longer than I have Texas, but I love Texas. I love it out here. Man, last night, I just, ah, oh, this dry air. Man, I love it. A lot of people think Amarillo's ugly. I don't, man. I love it out here. I love this country, I love the people, and it's always good to be back. I want to talk to you about a fight. You're going to be in it. You've already been in one. You may not have won. You may not know how to win. You may be frustrated by it, but you're going to fight this battle. Just because you've been in it once doesn't mean you won't be in it again, and we all fight it in different ways. I want to talk to you about how we overcome fear. You've got to overcome fear. If you don't know how to fight a battle against fear, fear will beat you. The Bible says in 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 22, So on the day of the battle, not a soldier with Saul and Jonathan had a sword or a spear in his hand. In other words, these guys did not have any close quarters weapons. The only two men in the whole Israeli army who had close quarters weapons were the king and his son. Now, they were not totally defenseless. They had weapons, 
but their weapons weren't made for close quarters fight. The Bible says there were hundreds of men in Israel who could sling a stone at a hare and not miss, or they could shoot arrows. But that's an ineffective weapon when the first wave of arrows or the first wave of stones fails to take out the entire enemy force. They keep coming and they get close. You've got to have a totally different weapon. And they did not have the tools to overcome. You know, tools are so very, very important. If you don't have the right tools, you can't take care of what it is that you face. You just, you're going to fail. You've got to have the tool. You have to saw a board in two and you don't have anything but your fingernails, you're going to wear your fingers to a nub trying to cross that board over and over again. You may get it apart hundreds and thousands of times later, but you really can't do it effectively without a saw. Or maybe you're trying to tighten the lug nuts on the spare tire you just put on your car and you don't have a wrench, and you tighten them up as much as you can, but the tension of that wheel just spinning, and the weight of the car eventually is going to come off. The tire's going to come off again. Why? Because you didn't have the tool. You see, if you don't have the right tools, you don't know how to use your tools, you're going to lose when you come into a battle with fear. You cannot face fear with your feelings, and that's exactly how many people try to beat fear. They want to feel their way out of fear. I've got to tell you something about fear. You can win a battle against fear even when you feel afraid. You can beat fear when you feel fear. A lot of people don't understand that. They think the minute that they feel fear, it's over. I've lost. I can't win. I know I'm afraid. I've already doubted. It's too late to win the battle. And i got news for you. That's not true. Because you've got to learn where to do the fight and how to do the fight and how to use the tool that God put into your hands. Now, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning in verse 3, for though we walk in the flesh, we live in this body, we don't fight with natural weapons, not against spiritual enemies. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're not natural but they are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. That's number one. And casting down imaginations. That's number two. And every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. That's number three. And bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. I just read to you a four-step process that Satan uses to train you. He trains you to fail. He cannot beat you. The Bible says we have to resist the devil and stand against the wiles of the devil. Last Friday night, two nights ago, we had our first football scrimmage. Our school does a pretty good job in football over the years. And uh, we've only been in the state association for 11 seasons. We've been in the state championship game twice. We've won a title. We've been to the semifinals two or three times. We go to the quarterfinals every year. We, we have a very good team. And what shocks a lot of people is we're not very big. We're almost never as big as the opposing team, almost never. We have never had that great big running back. I would to God, we had a great big old tough running back that could fly too. We, we, we've never had that kid. We've always had little guys. And our coaches have trained our kids to outsmart the other team. We have the most complicated offense of any high school football team in the state of Oklahoma. We do not have the luxury of just lining up and running right over people because we're not big enough to do it. We have to trick people. 
And that's the same way that the devil operates. The devil can't just line up and run over you. He's got to trick you. When the Bible says that we stand against the wiles or the tricks of the devil, that you should take as a compliment. Because if Satan could come in and just whoop you anytime he wanted to, he would not have to trick you. He has to trick you to beat you. You're really stronger than he is. You have more on your side. Remember, we talk about all the darkness in the world and all of that, but, but two-thirds of the angels did not fall. They're on our side. God's greater than the devil. The devil is not a total opposite of God. He's a created being. God is infinite. He's always been. He's on our side. So we have the advantages. But the problem is we don't know how to use the tools. And some of us think that Anytime we are fighting a battle that the most important element for us is to be motivated, to be full of enthusiasm. Now, I believe in being motivated and being enthusiastic, but it doesn't take the place of a tool. I want you to think about a bunch of guys working on a housetop and they're roofing with shingles and they're doing it old school. They've got little tacks and they're hammering with a claw hammer and, and they're doing it the old way. I, I shingled a roof like that one time and it, it takes forever. And I want you to imagine that while you're on that roof working, here comes some guy, and he looks up at you and says, Guys, you're doing an awesome job. Man, this is amazing. Look at this roof. Straight as a board. Just look, look, look how you guys are doing this. Y'all are doing awesome. Well, you may appreciate that the first time it happens. But the guy shows up the next day and the next day and the next day, and every time you get up on the roof and start saying, Man, y'all are doing an awesome job. Pretty soon you go throw your hammer at him. You're tired of hearing that. But then one day he comes along, takes a ladder, and throws it to the eave of the roof, and he crawls up there and says, hey, guys, have you ever seen this? Da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And he pulls out a hydraulic nail gun. Da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And he shows you how to do it a whole lot faster than what you're doing it. He changes your life when he puts a tool in your hand. You appreciate that a whole lot more. You know why you come to church? Well, we want to worship God. We want to feel good. Yeah, that's all good. That's important. It's good. But you know what's even more important? For you to walk out of this room with some real tools that you can use when you get into a fight and you know exactly how to fight your battle. Now, listen to me. We've got to learn how to overcome strongholds. Satan doesn't start with a stronghold in your mind. You know what a stronghold is? It is a rut that develops in your mind. And you get trained to respond. You, you, maybe you were abused when you were a kid. Maybe you were sexually abused. You still struggle with certain things in life because of the abuse you experienced as a kid. Maybe you were bitten by a dog. You still have a fear of dogs. Or maybe you got thrown off a horse when you were a little kid and you've never been able to get on a horse again. Or maybe you had a car accident. Or maybe someone that you loved had a car. It, it, it is amazing how we go through things. Maybe you were picked on in school and people made fun of you. And that can be debilitating. And you, you look across the room and you see people giggling and laughing and you, you know the feeling. You, it's got to be me. They're talking about me. You never get over that. You got hurt like that when you were a kid. And so we all develop these strongholds. I had a stronghold. I had a stronghold in the post office. I hated the post office. My blood pressure rose 20 points in the post office. I did not like the post office at all. Let me tell you how this started. I was 20 years old. I lived in Wheeler, Texas. I did not make much money. I didn't know anything about a bank account. 
I put money in the bank and I wrote checks, but I didn't know how you balanced a bank statement. I didn't know that. I didn't understand any of that. I thought an outstanding check was any check that was $50 or more. That's, I didn't know anything about outstanding checks. And what made things worse is we had counter checks at every business. You would go in to the cafe or the clothing store or the drug store or the cleaners and you'd pull out a checkbook from your bank and you would write that check down and, or write, write it and make it out and you forget how much it was. And if you don't keep track of that, pretty soon you don't have enough money in your account. So I hadn't been operating like this long, and before you know it, I bounced a check. I went to the bank or to the post office, and there's a, a letter in the mail from the bank for me. And I opened it up, and it's bad news. I was so embarrassed. I was sure that everybody in the post office, because they small town, they all go at the same time in the morning. They all know what's in that letter. They all know that I bounced a check. I'm just so embarrassed, so hurt, so so afraid. And 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 so I scraped up a little extra money, I borrowed some, and put it in the bank and covered the the shortfall. But it wasn't enough because I hadn't accounted for some other out standing jacks. And so the next day I got another one. 22 business days of the month, I got an overdraft notice every single day. I paid $175 worth of bounce check charges, insufficient funds, $175 in one month on a $300 a month salary. Listen to me. It was a mess. I still don't like the post office to this day. I don't like going to a post office. I don't like the way they smell. To me, the post office is bad news. My wife says, go out and get the mail. I don't want to get the mail. You get the mail. You're the one that likes to get the mail. I don't like the mail. <laughs> but it's because of something that I went through once in my life. It became a stronghold. I'm laughing a little bit about it, but you get it because some of you have more serious strongholds than this. And here's what a stronghold is. It starts with a simple thought. And if you don't recognize that thought, then it turns into a thought that contradicts what God has said. If you don't reject that, it turns into an evil imagination. You imagine yourself failing or something bad happening, or you imagine yourself doing something wrong. And finally, it becomes a stronghold. Some of us have strongholds when it comes to temper. We were raised in a home where the way you solve problems is you lost your cool, you raised your voice, you hit somebody. And that's your problem-solving technique. It's something you grew up with. You know it's not right, but you keep it because it is your weakness. And when you think of something like that as your weakness, you are prone to keep it because, after all, everybody's got a weakness, don't they? That's just my weakness. It's like bringing a rat to bed with you and petting it. Listen to me. It's not a weakness. It's a stronghold. You've got to learn to tear that thing down and get that out of your life. You've got to keep that from becoming a part of your behavior. That's what a stronghold is. And we have weapons that will do it. And I'm going to show you how to take those tools and apply them to the battle that you fight with fear. Now, I call fear a close quarters fight for this reason. When fear comes to you, it's not out there 
It's right in your face. Fear works in your mind. You feel its effects instantly. In fact, fear has a way of making you feel its presence before you ever chose to feel its presence. You will feel fear and have the feelings of fear even though you did not want to be afraid. Have you ever tried to tell yourself, calm down, it's going to be okay, and, and, and yet your feelings did not obey you. The fear, it hung on. And you thought, man, this is not fair. I don't intend to be this way. I don't want this. But yet you have it and you think you've lost. The Bible tells us about this, that we have a weapon. And Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 11 says this, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. And then Paul goes on to tell us about the seven different parts of armor that we fight with the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, our loins are girded with truth. We have on shoes that are made of very hard leather. They have cleats on the bottom so that when we stand our ground, we can't be pushed backward. And they protect our toes and our tender, uh, the soles of our feet from, from weapons and arrows and so forth. We have a shield of faith that we use to catch the things that are thrown at us. And then we have the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And we have all kinds of prayer. Prayer is a spear. It's not one spear. There are all kinds of spears. There was a spear that a Roman soldier threw. There was another one that was so long that the only person who could carry it and use it effectively was a horse-mounted soldier. I find this interesting that the Spanish copied the long spear and they kept that in their arsenal. So when the Spanish began to fight on horseback, they used this big, long 16-foot long spear. The Spanish were the first ones to come to the Southwest. They came into the Southwest with those weapons and when the Comanche Indians saw these people on horseback and how they fought, they adopted the spear. They took a 16-foot long wooden stick, made a spear out of it and I think back, it goes all all the way back to Rome, maybe even further than that. But it made its way into North America because it was an effective weapon. We have some spears that the soldiers would stick into the ground and plant their feet, and it would withstand the charge of a, a horse. It would penetrate the breast of a horse and kill him dead if he rode into a group and a mass of soldiers holding these big pikes. And so we have all kinds of prayers. We have the prayer of faith. We have the prayer of agreement. We have the prayer of consecration. We have a prayer of worship. We can pray for someone else and pray the prayer of intercession. We've got all kinds of spears to chunk and to poke with. But I want to talk to you about the sword. The Bible says we're to take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, this is where it's helpful to understand a little bit of the Greek. And the Bible says we take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, but the Greek doesn't say it like that. The Greek New Testament says take the sword of the Spirit, which is the spoken Word of God. That book laying on your coffee table is not a sword. But when you stand against the devil and you speak a scripture, that becomes a sword. The Bible says that Jesus has a sword that comes out of his mouth. It is the spoken word of God that is the sword. It's not just the word of God in general. And so there are times when you have to pull out the sword and use that sword effectively against fear. You have to learn to do it. Now here's what happens with a lot of people. 
A lot of people will take one or two jabs with the sword, and when the enemy doesn't turn around and run, they feel like they're defeated. They think that it does not work. I must be doing something wrong. This did not happen as quickly as I expected it to happen. And we get these images of these other people that have great faith, and we presume that every battle they fight, it's over instantly. They pray once, they speak the Scripture once, and boom, the devil runs away, and everything's great. Now, here's a story in the Bible you need to hear. It'll help you. This is one of David's mighty men. He had over 30 mighty men, but there were three that were absolute studs, and this is one of them. Next to him was Eliezer, the son of Dodai, the Ahoite. Weird names. But if you read about this guy, you don't make fun of his name. As one of the three mighty men, he was with David when they taunted the Philistines gathered at Pastamim for battle. Then the men of Israel retreated. They got into battle and they backed up. But he stood his ground and he struck down the Philistines till his hand grew tired and froze to the sword. He fought for so long that his hand was frozen. He could not straighten out his fingers. He'd been slinging the sword. Now listen to this. The Lord brought about a great victory that day. The troops returned to Eliezer, but only stripped the dead. He piled up the dead. He fought guys all over the battlefield, and the Bible says the Lord gave a great victory. Now, I want you to think about that for a minute. Was it the Lord? Or was it Eliezer? Eliezer was fighting, but the Bible says God was fighting. That tells me something. When you fight, God fights. When you quit, God quits. If you want God to keep fighting for you, you don't quit fighting. You keep using your sword. You keep using the tool. I didn't tell this story in the first service, but I knew the most important people in the church would be here for this one. <laughs> Every now and then I go north to hunt. I go to the mountains of the Northwest Territories in Canada. And it's loaded with grizzly bears. In fact, just last week, I read about a guy who was up there recording the sounds of the forest and all that, and he was dragged out of his tent and eaten by a grizzly bear. And so I've been in those situations where I knew we were in bear country because of the poop that was scattered all around the tent. And it's kind of a funny thing to look at a big pile of poop that was just dropped off by a bear while you were out. And so I'm laying there in the tent at night, and I'm thinking, there's nothing between me and that bear but a piece of nylon. And if he decides to come in this tent, there's not a heck of a lot I can do. I've got a rifle, but how am I going to point the rifle inside a tent that's being torn apart? You know? And so I'm thinking about this. And, and, and so, you know, I've got to have some battle verses. I need a verse to take with me to Canada to say, so that when I have these fears, I, it does not control me. So I looked in, found me some verses, and I had me a single battle verse that really helped me. And whenever I would feel fear, I would say this verse. And what I learned to do was quit trying to deal with the feeling of fear and start letting something out of my mouth touch the fear that I'm fighting. You've always got to keep the two. You don't touch your finger to the nail. You touch the hammer to the nail. You don't touch the bolt with your fingers. You use the wrench to turn the nut onto the bolt. You don't let yourself come into contact with fear. You keep a tool between you and fear all the time. Do you get that? Do you see that? That's so very important. And a lot of people don't know that. 
So when fear comes, they try to outfeel fear. You can't outfeel fear. Satan knows how to throw thoughts at your mind which turn into feelings of despair. You will feel defeated. Even when you're not defeated, you'll still feel that way. And what I want you to see is you've got to respond in the right way. Several years ago, we were playing basketball in our warehouse, three-on-three, concrete floor. That's the reason my knees don't work today. (laughs) And my daughter was there, nine years old, and she loved to come because some other kids would come with their dads, and they would crawl in the boxes in our warehouse and make little forts, and she fell. One of the boxes was empty. She put her hand on it. It collapsed, and she fell off head first and landed on her head. Screamed bloody murder. I picked her up and cradled her till she quit crying. But when I got her home a little later, she started throwing up. We immediately got on the phone to the emergency line for our doctor's group. And they said, we'll be open till such and such time. And I said, please stay open. My daughter's throwing up. She's had a head injury. But when I got there, and we were late because of an ice storm, and they had already gone. So I stayed with her all night long. I I laid on a couch and put her on a couch across from me. We had two sofas in our living room, and I put them together. And I I made sure she was comfortable and couldn't wait for the next morning. We got a hold of our regular doctor, took her in, and they x-rayed her, and they said, we don't see anything on the x-rays, but if she's throwing up and has this headache, we know there's something not right, so we're sending you to the main clinic to get a CAT scan done. So we go to the main clinic when we get a CAT scan done and the technician hands me an envelope. And he said, Mr. George, take this across the street right now to St. Francis Hospital. Take it to the emergency room. They'll meet you there. They'll tell you what to do. We'd been to the emergency room a number of times with broken arms and different things like that. You wait for hours in the emergency room, but not this time. Inside of five minutes, we're on an elevator going to pediatric intensive care. When we get off that elevator, I am met by a neurosurgeon who comes to me and asks me if I've read these reports that I've seen, what these pictures show. And I said, no, sir, I have not. He said, Mr. George, your daughter has a massive blood clot on her brain. Quite frankly, I don't know how she's conscious right now. She should be knocked out. The fact that she can speak and communicate and open her eyes, I I don't know how she's doing that. But this has to be evacuated. We've got to get rid of it. And then he puts in front of me a series of papers that I have to sign to promise not to sue the hospital if she dies during surgery. If she is blinded by the surgery, operating on the brain is a very delicate proposition And so there are all these things that could happen and go wrong, over 30 different conditions that could come out of this surgery. And when I am reading these things, Satan comes at my mind with his machine gun. See, he can fire negative thoughts into your imagination faster than you can think them. And I see my daughter's death. I see my wife walking down the hall a month after the the death. And she looks into that bedroom and she falls to her knees in the hallway crying over the loss of her nine-year-old girl. I see the funeral. I see even her brothers weeping. They fight like cats and dogs. But I see them weeping because their sister's gone. I see all of the aftermath. I see my own broken heart. I see me with my eyes swollen shut with tears, trying to console my family. We're all weeping together. And I mean, it is ugly. I'm going to tell you something. The devil is a heartless, heartless enemy. He pulls no punches when it comes to fighting. He fights dirty. 
and you cannot be nice to the devil. If you want to win, you've got to learn to stand your ground. You have to learn to fight with the weapons God gave you. About this time, I'm looking for the cavalry. I want a feeling to come over me. I want to feel God. I want to feel like he's there with me. I want to see Jesus or an angel. I want something great to happen. But it didn't come. All I got was a still small voice, very quiet on the inside. Jesus said that if you say unto this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in your heart, but shall believe those things that you say will come to pass, you'll have whatever you say. That was the voice of the Holy Spirit. He's cool, calm, and collected. Friday night in our football scrimmage, a kid from an opposing team dislocated his ankle. He's laying on the ground, and his foot is turned 90 degrees away from where it should be. I'm looking at this, ready to throw up. I turn my head. I don't want to see it. I, I'm bothered by this. I hate it, the whole crowd. I, I, I can look up. All of our football players are turning. Nobody's looking at it. Nobody wants to see it. But we have on our sidelines one of the most prominent trauma room surgeons in, in Oklahoma. He's one of our guys. He walks over to this kid, begins to talk with him, reaches down, pulls out his ankle, turns it, and pops it back into place. He's not the least bit bothered. Why? He's seen this before. See, the Holy Ghost has seen this stuff before. So he says to me, Jesus said, if you say unto this mountain, be removed and be cast in the sea, and shall not doubt in your heart, but shall believe those things you say will come to pass, you'll have whatever you say. I said, you know, that's my verse. I'm going to stand on that. So I said, Jesus said, if you say unto this mountain, be removed, be cast in the sea, shall not doubt in your heart, shall believe those things you say will come to pass, you'll have whatever you say. So I say, my daughter will live and not die. I say, my daughter will have a surgery that completely gets rid of that blood clot. There will be no complications. I say, the scar will be hidden and you won't even see it. I say, she will not have an infection after the surgery. I say, we're going home from the hospital early. I say this because Jesus said, if you say in this mountain, be removed and be cast in the sea and shall not doubt in your heart. Shall believe those things you say will come to pass. You'll have whatever you say.